Thanks for joining us for the Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise. To contact us, call us at 208-331-4096. That number again is 208-331-4096. Now here's Joel Van Hoogen. In Hebrews 11, we learn that Moses' faith was drawn from that of his parents, and through them, a germ of belief was implanted by the Spirit of God in Moses. How promising this is for us. Our children do not inherit salvation from us. They must come through the grace of faith as we did ourselves. But this is important. The first act of grace on their behalf to place in their lives this faith is to be exposed to the glorious germ of our faith. If so, then, God, let us be faithful for your sake and for theirs. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to or seeking the reward. Actually, if you look at Acts chapter 7, we won't go there, but there's a sermon that Stephen preached just before he was stoned to death as the first Christian martyr in Jerusalem. And as he's preaching to the Jews on that occasion, he refers to Moses and the decision that Moses made to come out of Pharaoh's house. And he said that at that time, Moses was 40 years old. He's 40 years old at the time at which we're being referred to in this passage. He wasn't a young, idealistic, impulsive youth. This is an individual who reached adulthood. He's processing the information that he was receiving. All those years, he's grown up in the house of Pharaoh. And it's at this time that he makes this decision. Our passage tells us that faith led Moses to seek a greater reward than what he had found in the house of the king of Egypt. And that this reward was something that Moses looked to by faith as of such immense value to him that he was willing to forsake all that he had and possessed in Pharaoh's house in order to lay hold of it. It's clear from the statement here, the fleeting pleasures of sin, that Moses by the age of 40 had determined Whatever were the pleasures to be found in the palace of Pharaoh, whatever were the privileges and the honor and the enjoyment and the ease of life that he had been introduced to in the house of Pharaoh, that these were fleeting pleasures, that these were temporary things. We're actually not in a position to grasp at all the kind of pleasure that Moses was weighing here, this fleeting pleasure that he's weighing with this desire for something more that he desires. We're not able to really understand it only because we've never in our earthly experience come near to what it would have been like to have been a prince in Egypt, surrounded by those who were called to serve you as one who they were taught was of divine birth. You remember that Moses was retrieved out of the Nile, and the Egyptians worshipped the Nile as a god. You'll also recognize that he was raised in Pharaoh's house and Pharaoh's family, and the Egyptians, again, worshipped Pharaoh as a god in Egypt as well. So Moses lived surrounded by and encased in the opulent rewards of an individual as served by those who thought they were honoring a member 
of a divine family. I remember the first time that I was in Cambodia. You know our worker in Cambodia, Ernest Ung. He actually grew up in the home of the primary general for King Sihanouk. When I first met him and Ernest told me about the kind of life he led, I couldn't identify with it whatsoever. He just told me that he lived in a big house and that he had a lot of honor and he had servants. And, you know, you think of Cambodia as a rather relatively poor nation. I ultimately went with Ernest and we landed in the airport. And before we got to the airport, he said, listen, I have to go and change my clothes. So we went back into the bathroom in the plane and he came out wearing the clothes of the highest dignitaries in the country of Cambodia. He had been received by honor from them in the country. And before we got out of the airport, they somehow, through our customs, found out that he was there. And before we got out of the airport, he was already being called by the prime minister of Cambodia, being told that he had to come and meet with him. He had told me he wasn't going to let him know that we were going there because we wanted to have some time to just meet with churches and different individuals. And we wanted to introduce Ernest to them as a person who was a humble person just like them and not some great power. And, well, we didn't, it didn't work very well. Uh, as we were driving into the city, teeming with people, I noticed just a few Western billboards. They were advertising a gas station, and they had uh, like a town and country car, a little kid, and a beautiful little kid in, in soccer shorts with a well-dressed mother, and he, he pointed at the child and says, you'd be surprised to know this, but that little child's name is Ernest Ung. That's my nephew. And he was the one that was chosen for this picture. And we listened to some music. He goes, oh, he says, that's the voice of my, my other nephew. He's like the most popular singer in all of Cambodia. And then Ernest started getting a little impressed here. And then, show me where your home was, Ernest. You drive to where his home was, and it's not a big house. It's a palace. And it's butted right up against the palace of the king, which is of gold. Ernest shared how his father used to commute out to visit the troops from a helicopter pad that was on top of their roof, and how each one of them had their own servants, a body of servants that attended to each one of his children that would get them up in the morning and sit at their feet when they ate every meal. And that was just a little bit of what Ernest experienced, but not to be compared with what Moses would have experienced in Pharaoh's house. All of the things that were given to him, all the honor that was placed upon them because the people were expressing, in a sense, their adoration for Pharaoh's children and Pharaoh's house. While all those outside of Pharaoh's house worshipped those inside the house as gods, Moses came to understand that those in Pharaoh's palace were living in a temporary dream of pleasures that was going to be swallowed up in a meaningless oblivion. That's what came upon him. He occupied a valuable vantage point. He was able to be granted all of the desires that he might have in all of Egypt, and he found out that these pleasures were fading and they were fleeting, and Moses began to yearn for something that was eternal. You recall that the parents of Moses were Jewish slaves who had been granted faith by God to watch over him and protect him and preserve him and that God honored their faith so that God saved the baby Moses and even arranged for the baby to be nurtured and cared for by his Hebrew mother as his nurse. And we spoke about this just last Sunday. So here is this little baby that's been ordered by the Pharaoh to be destroyed and killed, but they hide him for three months, and then they build a little craft for him to put him out along the Nile, the reeds of the Nile River with his sister watching over him during the daytime while they're out working and doing their slave duties so that they can care for him, preserve him, and keep him hidden as long as they can. And in this process, he's discovered by the princess of Egypt and the sister of Moses comes along and says, I know a woman who could care for him and nurse him for you. And 
he's given back to his parents to care for and watch over him. And so he grows up being taken care of by this Hebrew nurse who is his mother. And his mother and father must have in this capacity inculcated into Moses the lessons and information from which true faith would rise. The faith expressed by these poor slaves of Egypt offered to Moses a vision of something far exceedingly richer than all the treasures that he was exposed to and paraded before him in the house of Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. Moses wanted more than Pharaoh could give him. And Moses wanted more than all of the glory of Egypt could provide for him. God had stirred in Moses a faith that caused him to believe that this desire for something more than everything that was available to him was not without a basis. He began to understand that Egypt had all its many gods and the Jews had its one God. And by faith, he began to understand that Israel's God was God. And as a result, Moses went out from the house of Pharaoh and he identified himself with the people of Israel in order to seek as one with them Israel's God. That's basically the story we have here. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to make some observations from the story and from our text here. And with it, I'd like to expand out some of those observations. And then I want to just give you some lessons, some points of application regarding the life of faith and what faith looks like. There are all kinds of faith in the world. In fact, we've told this before. Faith is the most common component in our age. People express faith the minute they step out from the door from their house. They express faith when they step into the house. They express faith when they eat the meals that they're served. They're believing that somehow this is going to pay off and they're going to make it. They express faith when they get into an Uber car and drive somewhere that this person's going to get them to their destination. It's faith. Everybody lives by a certain kind of faith. But then there's saving faith. There's the faith that is given as a divine gift by God to trust in Him, seek in Him, and long for Him. And this faith is different. It looks different. It expresses itself in surprising fashion in ways that we'd be quite surprised by. And we'll see this in the life of Moses in the observations that we're going to make here. So let me make my first observation. I want you to observe that at the time Moses made this decision to turn away from all of the privileges and all the pleasure and all the wealth of being known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter in order to be identified with the people of Israel, that the people of Israel at that time did not look like or act much like the people of God. They weren't very attractive. By faith, Moses was enabled to see them from God's view and not from what would have met his eye. The question is, what would explain that? I mean, listen, when we understand what the Israelites looked like, they were not only a, a nation of slaves, but they were a nation of idolatrous slaves. Ezekiel 20, Ezekiel the prophet reveals to us that the nation of Israel was not only this nation of slaves, but they were idolaters who delighted to have before their eyes the gods of Egypt. And so here were these people who, I don't know, you call that the Stockholm Syndrome? They were being held by their captives. They'd come to the point where they were in complete agreement with their captors. They bought into the gods of their captors. They yearned for the power and the position and the privilege of the divine. They themselves would have served Moses as if he was a divine one, even when Moses knew he was not. And at the same time, all this, 
Moses looked upon these slaves who were giving him the honor and worship of a God. Moses looked upon them as the people of God, and he wanted to be among them. And what accounts for this? Well, there are two things, and the first one is this. I believe that Moses began to see the possibility of this people chosen of God in the life of faith that he observed in his mother and father. Whatever were the points of incongruity, whatever were the disconnect with the majority of the Jewish slaves at that time, Moses saw in these slaves and in these idolaters a people of promise, a people of God, and as such, he saw in them something of the people of faith that God could raise up from them. I believe that it's most likely that he saw this glorious possibility through the beauty that was found in the faithfulness of his parents and observing their life and watching them. Now, here's a lesson for you. A godly mother or father who live out their faith can go a long way to overcome the hypocritical examples that their children may be exposed to in others who profess the same faith but don't live it out. Our job is not to shield our children from the reality of those individuals who make easy professions but don't seem to live it out in their lives. Our job is to live out a life possessed by a deep abiding faith in God in humble faithfulness to Him, and if we'll do that, this should be enough by God's grace to stir our children's hearts towards Him, regardless of the poor examples found around them and in the lives of others. Thanks for joining us at the Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. For a copy of this broadcast, just call us at 208-331-4096. Until the next time, may the Lord bless you.